Welcome back to the Untold Civil War Podcast. Today's story was truly untold until our sponsor, Civil War Trails, went out to York County, Pennsylvania and installed signs that give insight to the role Wrightsville played in the Civil War. Their mission, like mine, truly does bring untold stories to light. So I want to thank Drew Gruber for setting up this interview, and I encourage all of my listeners to use the link in the show notes to learn more about Civil War Trails. And now, mount your steed, check your carbine, and let's ride into some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast, and I'm here with Scott Mingus, and we will be discussing a very interesting story of Pennsylvania and the Civil War, which basically, to my knowledge, is relatively untold, and that's why we're here on the podcast, of course. So we're talking about the story of Wrightsville. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate being here. I guess to kick this uh, story off, before we get into my questions, I would love to ask you, what really... Uh, brought you to this story? How did you find this untold story? Uh, thanks. Uh, very, fairly quickly. My background is I'm a senior scientist and executive in the pulp and paper industry. And I was recruited to come to work for a paper company in York, Pennsylvania, 2001. So I moved here from Cleveland, Ohio, and my oldest son came along and he ended up getting his master's degree from Millersville University, but he wrote his thesis on the burning of the Wrightsville Bridge. That's how I got really interested in it because I was reading through his work. I'm like, this is fantastic. There's actually a book here. And he didn't necessarily want to write a book, but I did. Uh, so I'm like, you know, I'll just start researching this and I'll write my own book based on the subject. And so the more I dove into it, the more I realized that, you know, the story wasn't just Wrightsville. It was the entire, Joe Borley's entire expedition, if you will. Once he entered Pennsylvania and the, you know, the events that happened in Gettysburg and York, Hanover Junction, as well as Wrightsville, because it's all one story. And to your point, it was fairly untold till I you know, wrote my book, Flames Beyond Gettysburg, the Confederate expedition to the Susquehanna River in June 1863. Not a lot of attention had really been focused on this. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like if it's not about those three days at Gettysburg, we seem to forget the whole theater over there in Pennsylvania, the whole uh, Gettysburg campaign, if you will. Yeah, it is. I mean, because I mean, obviously, rightfully so, all of our attention for for the last 160, almost 160 years has been on the battle because that's the focal point that got a little publicity. But for all the citizens in South Central Pennsylvania, in particular, the five counties that the Confederates entered, this was very real to them. Uh, and it was certainly just as traumatic to them, perhaps as the citizens of Adams County. While we didn't have the death and destruction of major battles, there were you know, small engagements, small battles in a number of other counties beyond just Adams County. And those small fights and, and small engagements, uh, you know, often are glossed over in most histories of the battle, but they were important to the people who lived there at that time. Oh, absolutely. I guess let's kick this off. So why would the Confederacy want to enter Pennsylvania in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Paul. A lot of it stems back to Stonewall Jackson in 1862. Jackson uh, had a Confederate congressman on his staff, any major uh, A.R. Bottler or Bodler. He came up to Stonewall Jackson one day, you know, Jackson was outdoors near his tent. Uh, and Jackson was talking to him about the prospects of the war. And Jackson told him, in effect, if you give me 36,000 men, I'll take the war to the banks of the Susquehanna. 
So Jackson had realized for some time that Pennsylvania was actually a key part of a potential strategy of forcing Abraham Lincoln to negotiate. Keep in mind this 1862 at the point, nobody knows how the midterm election's going to go, but it certainly doesn't look good for Lincoln at that point in time. So the idea is maybe we can win a battle in South Central Pennsylvania. Well, Jackson and Lee get together, of course, during the summer uh, when Jackson reinforces Lee during the Peninsula campaign. And that idea of coming to Pennsylvania starts getting traction. In fact, Lee will try to come to Pennsylvania in August and September of 1862 in what's variously known as the Northern Virginia Campaign or the Second Bull Run or Second Manassas Campaign, or later, of course, the Antietam Campaign. So, you know, once uh, Lee thinks the time's right after the battles of Second Manassas and Groveton, uh, Chantilly, et cetera, he decides, okay, it's time to go to Pennsylvania. And that's where he's headed. Uh, during the Antietam campaign in October of 62. He sends Jeb Stewart to Pennsylvania in late October 1862, about four weeks or so after the Battle of Sharpsburg on September 17th. Uh, and Stewart creates a lot of consternation here. Over the winter, Stonewall Jackson, of course, will end up dying in the spring at um, Guinea Station. But the idea of coming to Pennsylvania is still there. At least got several reasons. First of all, South Central Pennsylvania has been Copperhead country for a long time. Votes Democratic, typically, in fact, here in York County, Mannheim Township, voted 174 votes for Vice President John Brackenridge and two for Abraham Lincoln. So this is extremely pro-South, pro-Democrat, anti-Lincoln area. So Lee thinks if I can win a victory in South Central Pennsylvania on Yankee soil, perhaps these copperheads will rise up and force political changes. You know, maybe Lincoln will come to the negotiating table. But a key's got to win a victory in, North, in Southern Pennsylvania. Now, he's got some secondary reasons for coming to Pennsylvania as well. One, he's been fighting in Northern Virginia for 12 to 18 months, and a lot of the food supplies have been negated. There's a lot of consternation among Virginia farmers about how they're going to feed their families for another summer. So he wants to move the theater of war out of Virginia into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Also, he's concerned about the supply lines. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of supplies going to the Army of Northern Army of the Potomac, as well as the U.S. Navy, coming from Pennsylvania. Coal, tents, horses, food, materials, supplies, ammunition, guns. I mean, a big arsenal, of course, in Philadelphia. You've got Phoenix Ironwork that makes cannons. All that is known to the Confederacy. So busting apart the railroads in South Central Pennsylvania is another key part of the strategy, as we'll find out. Uh, and then finally, he wants to divert Union attention from Vicksburg. Uh, and in fact, he's going to partially succeed because Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps will be turned around. And they will move back towards Cincinnati. Uh, they were on their way through Kentucky and Tennessee, heading down to Mississippi to join U.S. Grant down there. So there are you know, parts of parts of this campaign. Lee will achieve his goals. Winning that victory, though, number one goal, that's going to be a problem. Right. Right. Now, you did mention something, and I've actually heard this before, and there's been a lot of conversation about it. And I thought maybe you can uh, talk a little bit more on it, is how you talked about their is a lot of Confederate sympathies in Pennsylvania. So a lot of times I hear about the war not really being about North and South, but really Union and Confederate. I mean, it's a great point because the hill country of North Texas, for example, was highly Union. East right. Tennessee, the mountain ranges were highly Union. Uh, Northwestern Virginia was going to break away and become its own state during the Gettysburg campaign on June 20th, 1863. So you've got a lot of pro-North sentiment in a lot of areas in the South. Likewise, in the, nor in the North, 
I grew up in Southern Ohio. There were parts of Southern Ohio because of trade reasons with Virginia and Kentucky were certainly sympathetic. In fact, one of the leading copperheads, if you will, peace Democrats in the entire United States was an Ohio congressman from Southern Ohio, uh, not far from where I lived uh, for most of my uh, childhood by the name of Clement, Clement Vallandigham, uh, who Lincoln actually exiled. He's an Ohioan and Lincoln throws him out and sends him to Canada at one point. So, you know, Ohio, Southern Indiana, Southern Pennsylvania, New York, in fact, New York's mayor, Fernando Wood, wasn't exactly, uh, let's just say he wasn't Lincoln's bosom buddy by any stretch of the imagination. So you've got some leading politicos as well as a lot of citizens. Now here in York County, the same uh, true in parts of Lancaster, Adams County as well, the closer you went to the Maryland border, the more people were into, you know, Southern politics, they'd intermarried with people, they, you know, their culture was very similar to what it was in Maryland, which was a slave state, of course, for Pennsylvania being a free state at the time. So, and a lot of these folks had business connections. Uh, York County, for example, uh, the main highway that ran north-south went to Baltimore. So you had a tremendous amount of Baltimore influence in this area as well. As we know, Baltimore was a hotbed uh, early in the war, at least of pro-secession to sentiment, and that carried over. Right, right. I just think that's something that we should always keep in mind with these things, because it's always more complicated than just what you see on a map. Yeah, that's why you know, I've had editors tell me, don't use the term the northerners shot at the, at the southerners, etc., because, you know, there were northern generals who fought for this. In fact, the Confederate general was from, from here in York, not far from where I live, you know, a Confederate Brigadier General born in Pennsylvania and vice versa. You had, a, you had uh, guys like Pat Thomas of Virginia who fought for the North. So you had a lot of mixed loyalties. Truly a civil war, for sure. We talked a little bit about the Confederacy and uh, their goals, Lee's goals, I should say. Can you tell us about uh, Jubal Early specifically and the force sure. under his com command? And because Jubal Early is kind of an interesting character, I think. Yeah, Jubal is... Uh, Robert E. Lee, in fact, called Jubal Early my bad old man, even though uh, he was younger. Jubal Early was younger than Lee. At least they'll call him my bad old man. Uh, Jubal Early is highly vitriolic. Uh, he has a rash temper. He's very profane. Uh, he's impetuous. He's a career soldier. He, he had fought in the Mexican War, did a lot of other military activities before the Civil War, resigned from the U.S. Army, was uh, quite uh, an aggressive fighter had fought at Bull, first Bull Run, so he'd been in most of the leading battles of the war. By 1863, Jubal Early commands a division of roughly 6,600 men. He reports directly to the Corps commander, Second Corps commander, Lieutenant General Richard Stoddard Yule. Early may be the most aggressive fighter under Yule, certainly will eventually become commander of independent forces and will have play a prominent role in 1864 in the Valley Campaign and in uh, the attack on Washington, D.C. But here in 1863, he's got four brigades, uh, each of which is a separate state affiliation, if you will. He's got the famed Louisiana Tigers under Brigadier General Harry Hayes. He's got uh, a Georgia Brigade under probably his most talented subordinate, Brigadier General John Brown Gordon. He's also got his own former Brigade of Virginians under his least talented subordinate, uh, who is the governor-elect of Virginia, Brigadier General William Extra Billy Smith. And the final brigade is a very small brigade of North Carolinians who have been shot to pieces at Chancellorsville and lost their commander. And so the remnants have been, were now under a colonel by the name of Isaac Avery, destined to die mortally wounded at Gettysburg. So that's Early's division, 6,600 men. He's got about four batteries or so of artillery underneath him. 
uh, and assorted other hangers on. He also has, uh, under his direct command for this part of the Gettysburg Campaign, of the 17th Virginia Cavalry and the 30th Battalion Virginia Cavalry. So he is escorted by maybe 475 or so Southern horsemen. And uh, basically, what does Lee tell Jubal Early about what his goals are going into Pennsylvania? What does he want? Him well, actually, Early doesn't. Yeah, Early doesn't know a lot of the goals. He, uh, when he arrives in Pennsylvania, he camps on June 23rd at Greencastle, and he rides into Chambersburg, where his commander, Lieutenant General Richard Yule, finally explains what Early's goals are. Till then, he just knew he was supposed to, you know, do whatever Yule said. And he fought at Second Winchester on June 13th, 14th, and 15th, and he marched into Pennsylvania, still not 100% sure what the goal was. Now he learns that his mission is to turn east and cross over South Mountain, go through Gettysburg, head to York, which was the largest town then and now between Baltimore and Harrisburg. He was to take over that town and destroy whatever railroad facilities he could find in the area, York being a major railroad place at the time. Uh, and then he was going to, to Wrightsville, and his, his orders were to burn the Wrightsville Bridge, which was the world's longest covered bridge, but it was an important route for any Union reinforcements from Philadelphia to make it westward across the broad Susquehanna River. It's the only bridge between Harrisburg and Maryland. So burning that bridge effectively cuts off the entire part of eastern Pennsylvania from reinforcing any Union troops that might come up to contest Lee's activities in South Central Pennsylvania. Early's going to change those orders, as we'll see. Here is a quick reminder that the podcast now has a fully functional website. Check out the website to see our other episodes, video content, and of course, our store. Untold Civil War Curiosities serves as a place where you can get the latest merch designed by our sponsor, The Badge Maker, to include stickers and hand-painted tin cups. But the store also serves as an online museum, as I am selling a few authentic Civil War relics. So if you don't plan on purchasing anything, still give the site a visit, link in the show notes, to see the unique items we have on display there. Right, right. Talked about the Confederate side. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Union side. So can you introduce us to our Union commanders and what were their goals? The key player here on in Pennsylvania's side was the governor. Republican Governor Andrew Gregg Curtin was a strong, strong supporter of Lincoln. Backed it can be argued that Pennsylvania may have, the strong, at least uh, in Curtin, may have had the strongest relationship with Lincoln of any governor in the North. Curtin and Lincoln are very, very strong allies on a number of fronts. Curtin has been convinced from the beginning the Confederates come to Harrisburg because he was scared to death that a repeat of 1862 was going to happen when Stewart threatened South Central Pennsylvania, ran amok in Franklin County, burned the railroad uh, there, had ridden to, uh, to within six miles of Gettysburg. Uh, and everyone was fearful then he was heading to Harrisburg to either destroy the bridges or try to ride into Harrisburg. So the Governor Curtin is, is quite alarmed by everything. He's called for 50,000 volunteers because he knows the Union Army can't arrive. And so these volunteers need a leader. So the War Department in Washington has dispatched Major General Darius Couch, Darius Nash Couch, uh, a distant relative, believe it or not, of my, uh, my wife's family. Well, Darius Couch had been the commander of the Union Second Corps, Chancellorsville, but he was fed up with Joseph Hooker. He's asked for his resignation, which was accepted from the Army of, of the Potomac. And he's been home back in Washington looking for a job. Well, the War Department, uh, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck and Secretary of War Edward McMaster Stanton, sticks this guy in a train, sends him up to Harrisburg and says, you are in charge of the brand new Department of the Susquehanna. 
So your job is to defend the river and protect Harrisburg. Curtin and Couch will become the two key players in our story. Now, they're the top level. They need a field commander. So to command the actual forces that are going to be necessary, the state militia, that's hastily being organized in Harrisburg. Couch selects his aide de camp, a major of the 7th U.S. Infantry by the name of Granville Owen Howler. So Howler will become a key player. His job is to organize the defenses of specifically of Adams and York counties and to protect the covered bridge, uh, this mile and a quarter long bridge of Wrightsville. And so based on that, those are going to be your key three players. There'll be a few other people we'll introduce as we go along uh, who are colonels of some of the individual uh, infantry regiments that are raised by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But for now, let's just focus on those three. And as we're talking about the Union side, I think one of the fun parts of this was reading about some of the volunteers that responded to the call. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, one of my favorites from the story was Captain Charles C. Carson and the veterans of 1812. Um, I thought that was an interesting part. It's a real mixed bag on the Union side as compared to the Confederates, no? Yeah, it really is. I mean, obviously, Curtin has asked for 50,000 volunteers to defend Harrisburg. He's only going to get 7,000. So he's actually going to have to uh, send telegrams to the Democrat governors of New Jersey and New York, swallow his political pride and reach out across party lines to go get help because both New Jersey and New York had standing state militia. Pennsylvania didn't. Pennsylvania, by law, can only call out the militia in terms of emergency when the state was actually being threatened. Otherwise, the militia didn't exist. He asked to call out the, the state militia, but, you know, these aren't guys who are soldiers. These are just people willing to sign up for the duration of the emergency. And among the volunteers that show up, as you mentioned, Paul, is Charlie Carson. Now, Charles Carson is going to lead a small contingent of 17 guys or so into Harrisburg. Uh, they're going to march down the streets of Harrisburg, pretty much bedecked out in their old War of 1812 uniforms. They're using drums and marching with formations that modern soldiers, modern 1863 soldiers, wouldn't have recognized. Carson's men will show up in the governor's office and, you know, they'll come to Governor Curtin and say, hey, we're here, you know, let us help. Curtin's kind of amused by these guys, but he also realizes the symbolism of this. Because, I mean, they're carrying the flag that one of the uh, members of the organization's father had carried at Brandywine in the War of Eight, or uh, American Revolution under George Washington. So they've got this tattered American Revolution flag. They've got War of 1812 men. Uh, and Curtin says, hey, we can use you. And they actually put uh, Carson and these guys, by the way, the youngest is 68 years old, the youngest in this group. So these are our you know, senior citizens like me, <laughs> gray-haired old geezers who are still patriotic and think they can do their thing. And they're going to actually spend the Gettysburg campaign in the entrenchments at Fort's Couch in Washington at Bridgeport on Hummel's Heights on the west shore of Harrisburg. And they're out there for the entire Gettysburg campaign. As far as I know, they're the only people to get pensions from the War of 1812 and the Civil War. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, another part is there were a lot of African-Americans I, I'm not sure, was this the first time like U.S. colored troops were adopted or the idea of U.S. colored troops were adopted? But I know there were colored troops that responded, right? Yeah, well, black men had responded. Now, there were already field troops, uh, 54th okay. and 55th Massachusetts of glory fame, of course, had already been organized. In fact, uh, 17 men from this region, from Lancaster and York County, 
had traveled to Boston and they had signed up for the 54th and 55th Massachusetts. Uh, that had happened earlier in the year. So a lot of other black men in this region wanted to serve as soldiers. And there was a consternation because Pennsylvania didn't have black regiments and the national U.S. colored troops had yet to be organized. So, you know, you had South Carolina, you had Massachusetts, but Pennsylvania didn't have anything. And Governor Curtin was kind of in a quandary legally as to whether he would actually allow black soldiers. But what they ended up doing is, yeah, the black men could volunteer, but they had to join home guard companies. They were organized under, in some cases, white leadership, but they weren't really soldiers. So they didn't have uniforms. They didn't have pay from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or the federal government, but they had the patriotism. And they had the willingness to fight. So, for example, at Wrightsville, there were a company of 53 uh, African-American men who worked at a rolling mill across the river in Columbia. These guys, some of whom had brothers or dads in some cases in the 54th and 55th Massachusetts, decided we'll sign up for this home guard company. Uh, and as we're going to find out, they're going to play a key role in the defense of the world's longest covered bridge. You mentioned about the governor's worry. Pennsylvania's kind of... Uh in a state of uh, panic as the Confederates are coming in. And I guess as horrible as it sounds, it sort of leaves room for people to sort of take advantage of this sort of thing. Could you talk about the uh, Knights of the Golden Circle and the con that happened in the area in regards to this? Yeah, this is a fascinating story, Paul. And it's one that I often tell when I give Civil War talks. It's just so, it's so unusual and so interesting. As, we, as I mentioned earlier, South Central Pennsylvania, particularly here in York County, was very anti-Lincoln in a lot of ways. Uh, in fact, York County voted Democrat every single election in the entire 19th century. Uh, so this is a long-standing Democratic region with ties to the South. And that was well known. So a group of men from New York City took the train through Philadelphia and they came here to York. And eventually they're going to spread out. We don't know how many there are. We just know there's a ring of these guys. So they're con men. They go throughout South Central Pennsylvania and they start preaching that they are members of the Knights of the Golden Circle and their official recruiting agents for this organization. Now, the Knights of the Golden Circle was a real group, did exist, it's been in all the newspapers, but not here in South Central Pennsylvania, it existed in other parts of the United States. But they are a pro-South group that advocated, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, Southern Ohio, Southern Illinois, places like that, either forming their own country or falling in with the South. So they were somewhat agents, if you will, of change, at least in their own minds. But these con men weren't affiliated with them at all. But they told these unsuspecting farmers, many of which were Germans, that, hey, you know, for one dollar, we'll give you the membership card to the Knights of the Golden Circle. We'll teach you the secret signs. We'll teach you the password. And you will become a card-carrying member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Then when, not if, when, they, they told them when the Confederates come, just show them the cards make the secret sign hand gestures and tell the secret password, which was peace, peace, and you will be fine. They'll know you're a friend of the South. You didn't vote for Lincoln. Con men are out to get the buck. And for $5, if you're really gullible, they'll make you almost like a master mason or something. They'll elevate you to the Knights of the Golden Circle for five bucks. And you'll teach, they'll teach even more hand signs that are even more gibberish, if you will. Uh, and they took five bucks from a lot of these poor farmers. As it turns out, it's all giant con game, shell game. They take the last train out of York before the Confederates arrive. And they're back in New York City where they openly brag in the pages of the New York Herald about a month later about conning the people of Pennsylvania out of thousands of dollars. Uh, and it turns out as the Confederates are coming in to Franklin and Adams counties, eventually here to York County, 
they see all these farmers making these gestures. Well, they learn real quickly, that's where all the horses are. All the sheep are still in the fields. You know, the storehouses are filled because the farmers didn't evacuate anything because they trusted in these golden tickets, if you will, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. So the rebels got really good at finding out, hey, there's a farmer out, you know, making these weird hand gestures, go to his farm. Where a lot of the pro, the outlands uh, took off and they crossed the Susquehanna River with their cows and their horses, uh, paid the tolls to get across to safety because they hadn't bought the tickets, they hadn't bought it all into the scam. It's like, well, you know, I don't need this. I'll rely on the U.S. government's protection, which didn't come, so they took off. But those kind men, those stories are, are still right here in this, this area. Tired of hauling all those groceries? No matter how many stinking trips I make to the grocery store, I always seem to be forced to make the arduous journey again and again. If you're in the same predicament, you may want to try out Instacart. Use the link in the show notes to create an account and have your groceries delivered directly to you. You will also be supporting the show at no extra cost. It's so sad that not only were they con from the beginning, but it also had the opposite effect of doubly outing them as, as having items that the Confederacy might want as they marched through. Yeah, in fact, Paul, one of the funny parts of that is a lot of these guys, in fact, one eyewitness called it a large crowd of these rural farmers came into downtown York, went to Democratic Party headquarters and demanded their dollars back, thinking the Democratic Party was behind this whole thing. And of course, the, the Democratic mayor of York, who was also the, the newspaper editor, is like, I don't know what you're talking about. We're not behind this. And so these poor guys are getting, they're getting mad in the streets of York and blaming the Democrats for all their problems as well. Didn't, didn't make any difference. In 1864, they voted even more overwhelmingly Democrat. So by then, everything had been forgiven. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. <laughs> you know, we're talking about the Confederates uh, coming into Pennsylvania. Do you have maybe firsthand accounts or stories of what the Confederates encountered, how were, they were treated, how they treated local populace? I know you talked a little bit about that. Can we talk about it yeah. a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, like any set of human beings, there were good, there were bad, both in the civilians and in the Confederate side. In some cases, Pennsylvanians bushwhacked and killed Confederate soldiers here in York County, a farmer murdered uh, Private Charles Brown of the 8th Louisiana Infantry, the Louisiana Tigers. Maybe the farmer was waving the golden ticket. I don't know. Uh, all we know is by Confederate service records, it says Private Brown was, quote unquote, murdered by the citizens of Pennsylvania. So you had guys who were killing Confederates. Likewise, uh, in Franklin County, Isaac Strite, who was a farmer, found himself staring down the barrel of guns from some of Albert Jenkins' Confederate cavalrymen from Virginia who kill him. They actually dump his body in a pile of horse manure and uh, by his barn where his, his daughter, to her horror, discovers this farmer's body. Now, those are the extremes on both sides, killing each other. More, more to the point, a lot of the civilians kind of ignore the Confederates and ignore the Yankees because a lot of these folks simply want to be left alone. A lot of the Confederates marvel at the, at the citizens, some of which turn their backs and shun them, others of which feed them and welcome them into their home. So again, you get this mixed bag. Some of the Confederates will uh, pay for things they take. Others will shamelessly steal things. The same will be true for the New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania militiamen. They will also, in some cases, steal things as well as you know paying in some cases so it's an incredible mixed bag uh, of reaction but if i had to say one thing surprisingly you know there was a lot of apathy uh, or a lot of folks who just simply said you know the war i'm not part of the war leave me alone 
Did the Confederates, when they came in, were they surprised by the amount of uh, farmer, male farmers that they saw or, or young males that were not in the Union Army? Yeah, there are a lot of stories in my book about that. Hanover is a great example here in southwestern New York County. You know, they come in and they see the, the streets are lined with young, with young adult males, uh, healthy looking farm boys and, you know, farm kids, things like that. And they're pretty shocked that, you know, these guys aren't in the army. And of course, one of the one of the locals is like, very soon you'll see us all in the army. You know, if you're going to come into Pennsylvania, we'll show you. But a lot of Pennsylvanians were, had, had already been in the army. They'd been discharged. In fact, in May of 1863, a number of Pennsylvania, in fact, a large number of Pennsylvania regiments had been mustered out of the Army of the Potomac. They're home with not a lot to do. So a lot of them are going to end up joining the state militia, but the rest of them are just kind of, you know, lounging around at their homes. Uh, and of course, there were a lot of other folks who were apathetic. There were hundreds of people in this area that were conscientious objectors, uh, members of certain religious denominations, Dunkers, the Quakers, Mennonites, etc., that didn't necessarily want to serve and had exemptions. And there were also men, a lot of men, who had bought substitutes, paid the $300 so they didn't have to serve. Uh, so you've got a uh, mixed bag. The Confederates were very surprised because in the South, just about every able-bodied man, whether they wanted to or not, was in the Army. Here in the North, it was kind of, you know, mixed bag because if you were drafted and you didn't want to serve, you either hid out or you bought somebody else. I think we should now get into what everyone is here for, a engagement at, at Wrightsville and the story of the bridge. Yeah, so the Confederates had come into York on Sunday, June 28th. They captured York, largest town in the region, and they were now marching east to Wrightsville. Now, Jube Orley had already taken Gettysburg on Friday, June 26, and he judged the militia there to be so utterly inefficient. He said, I'm going to capture the bridge at Wrightsville, and I'm going to go into Lancaster County, and I'm going to mount my men on all the captured horses that are on the eastern side of the river, and we're just going to simply march on Harrisburg ourselves. So that's what Orley's got in his mind now. I'm not going to burn the bridge. I'm going to take the bridge. Well, the state militia has other ideas. You've got these 53 black volunteers, uh, the home guard unit. You've got patients from the United States Army Hospital here in York that are still capable of shooting guns. You've got elements of the 20th and 26th Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia that have been chased out of Gettysburg and Hanover Junction. And an entire regiment of state militia, the 27th in the state militia, which in reality was the officers and men of the 129th Pennsylvania Infantry from the Army of the Potomac who had been mustered out. This is one of these units made up of guys who had plenty of seasoned experience. And oh, by the way, there's patients in the U.S. Army Hospital. Many of them are from Wisconsin, Michigan, and Indiana. There are brigade veterans. Yeah, about 5.30 on Sunday night, June 28th, about the same time, roughly, that the spy Harrison is riding into Chambersburg. You know, you know the story from the movie Gettysburg, of course. As he's, he's going to find Longstreet and Lee, roughly at the same time, some, you know, I don't know, 75, 80 miles to the east in Wrightsville, John Gordon's brigade of Georgians is now going to attack the state militia. They're trying to take the bridge in accordance with Early's orders. Uh, it's going to prove a little tougher than Gordon may have thought because, again, the state militia doesn't run away, particularly these forward guys from the 27th militia under Colonel Jacob Frick, a Medal of Honor winner from Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. I mean, these are no slouches. These aren't, these aren't schoolboys. Uh, these are coal miners and veteran soldiers from north central Pennsylvania. So they're going to resist, and Gordon's going to take quite some time to be able to, to push them out of Wrightsville. Artillery bombardment fires about 40 rounds. 
into and around the town. And then finally, the state militia leaves, stubbornly, fighting most of the way. Some of them run. The inexperienced guys in the 20th and 26th militia run. But the 27th guys don't. And neither do the black volunteer. These guys march out in good order. For guys who aren't soldiers, who are, you know, can you imagine what happened to an African-American with a gun shooting Confederates would have been taken prisoners of war? <laughs> they might have been lynched on the spot. One of them is killed. He's the only fatality that fighting a rights bill. Shell fragment hits him in the head and kills him. And to this day, we don't know his identity. We think perhaps he was an itinerant migrant or maybe even an escaped slave who had just joined in with these guys at the rolling mill in the weeks before because they didn't even know his name. And they looked for his name after the Civil War to find out who was this guy who died fighting beside us. So he's kind of the unsung hero, if you will, right still. You know, it kind of makes me think of the the conflict as a whole and think it was at the, the Harper's Ferry raid before the war. One of the first casualties was an African-American. You could argue that one of the first casualties on the Union side, one of the first defenders, he was an African-American. Yeah, in Baltimore during the practice. In Baltimore, yes, exactly. But then now you see the same thing in Riceville. So there's there's a pattern here, I think, of uh, African-Americans giving their lives for this cause. Absolutely. What happens to the bridge, though? as as they fall back yeah, over the great, bridge that's a great question because again everything had flipped at one time the, the union wanted to defend the bridge now they're going to burn it early had wanted to burn the bridge now he wants to take it uh so the state militia pulls back across the bridge and they decide we're going to we're going to at least knock it down so they they have one artillery piece they get ready to fire it and realize they don't have any ammunition so we can't we can't shoot the bridge. So then they decide we're going to blow it up. So they had bo- previously bored some holes in the uh, superstructure. Now they put in uh, charges of black uh, gunpowder, set it off. Well, this is a railroad bridge. It's very sturdy. And so all it does is knock the, the walls and the roof off of one small section. And the bridge deck, and especially the railroad tracks, are still perfectly usable. So that didn't work. So they resort to burning it. Uh, they roll barrels of coal oil from Columbia almost a mile. They roll these things through the bridge to the Wrightsville side and then set the bridge on fire. Again, thinking that maybe, you know, we'll just we'll put the fire out fairly quickly and it'll just destroy this one section. Well, windstorm comes up and the entire bridge, all mile and a quarter of it, uh, takes six hours and the whole bridge burns, uh, which will not be replaced until after the Civil War. Now, one of the interesting things I find is that the the bridge catches fire, but the Confederates sort of assist in this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of obviously interesting that uh, the bridge is now burning and John Gordon, who's been trying to put the fire out, has pleaded with the residents that I need buckets, I need pails, I need a fire engine, I need something, and nobody has anything. Well, this windstorm that is blown in now sends the flaming embers back into Wrightsville. Suddenly, everybody's got a bucket because their houses are now threatened. Gordon and his second command, Colonel Clement Evans of the uh, 31st Georgia, they decide we're going to form a bucket brigade and dip water from the Susquehanna River and from the Susquehanna and Tidewater Canal we're going to pass it uphill into Wrightsville, and we're going to save the town, which is what they do. I mean, hundreds of Confederates form a series of these long lines, and they're passing buckets up, and they do save most of Wrightsville. And in fact, the mayor's daughter, a lady by the name of Mary Jane Rewalt, will come out in the middle of the throng, and she'll thank John Gordon personally for saving her dad's house and saving the town. 
and invite him to come to breakfast the next morning. So sort of summarizing, I mean, what sort of conclusion do we draw from this engagement? I think the number one conclusion, Paul, comes from Joe Borley. Joe Borley wants to seize the bridge. He rides over to Wrightsville to see how Gordon is doing. Uh, here's the firing, of course, into his utter, utter disgust. He sees a column of black oily smoke in the distance and starts getting a little worried. By the time he gets to Wrightsville, he realizes that the bridge is on fire, which is not what he needs. And his thought is, you know, I simply told Gordon not to burn the thing. Obviously, the Yankees did it. He actually confronts John Gordon on the streets of Wrightsville in front of citizens and berates his second command publicly about his failure to destroy the militia, capture them, capture the bridge. So in Jim Early's mind, this is an utter failure. I mean, it, he's disgusted. And it's the start, frankly, of a lifelong rift between Gordon and Early that never truly gets healed. Right, right. And we would see that when uh, Early does another raid uh, up into Washington, right by Washington uh, later on in the war. Yeah, and then that, well, and then finally, of course, the famous break between Gordon and Early at Cedar Creek, uh, where Gordon wants to continue the attack on the first day, you know, nothing happens, and, you know, then, you know, that really will frost Gordon, of course. So, yeah, I mean, and then from the Union perspective, they did what they were supposed to do. They denied the Confederates passage into the east, eastern shore. So, in effect, if if you assume that Early really was going to try to march on Harrisburg, which is what he said he was going to do on his post-war writings, then this is a smashing victory for you know, Major Haller and particularly for Colonel Frick who in effect had tactical command there. I mean, they did their job. They protected the East Shore. And obviously, Gordon's men are going to pull back. And on June 29th, the next day, he, uh, Joe Borley as well, received the orders that Lee's recalling the army. They're concentrating by Heilersburg and Cashtown. And these guys have got to march back all the way from Wrightsville back to Gettysburg, a town that John Gordon had already captured and had been in on Friday, June 26th. Now, July 1st, he's going to try to fight his way back into a town that he'd already had. That, to me, is the other irony of the thing, that the Confederates had Gettysburg. You know, we talk about, you know, the strategic crossroads town. They never held it. They marched on because they wanted York. And so the ultimate fiasco for Joe Borley is, you know, he makes, in effect, a 90-mile round trip for nothing. What do you think this campaign, or this action, I should say, tells us, or how does it influence the rest of the, the war? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, of course, the performance of the black men at Wrightsville convinces uh, Couch and Curtin that these black guys can be soldiers. Uh, and when the United States colored troops are authorized later in August and September of 1863, almost every one of the black civilian defenders of Wrightsville's Home Guard Company signs up for the U.S. colored troops, as do hundreds of Pennsylvania's black men. So recruiting in this state in the Commonwealth are, is extremely strong. And it's an action of rights bill that helps convince the, you know, these black men that we can be soldiers, we can do what these guys did. I mean, they didn't have uniforms, but you know, we do. So I think that's one of the enduring legacies of what happened here. John Gordon also made an interesting point that what happened on those little hills, as he called them out by Wrightsville, in his mind actually influenced what happened to Gettysburg because Keep in mind, at Gettysburg on June 26th and at Wrightsville on June 28th, the Confederates deploy thinking they're facing state militia. At Gettysburg, they run away. Uh, and at Wrightsville, they, they withdraw and retreat. So in both cases, the state militia has abandoned the field and left it to the Confederates. Remember July 1st, what does Harry Heath think state militia? 
they're back in Gettysburg. So it has a huge impact, at least in, in the initial feelings of what happens to Gettysburg. That the Confederates, again, thinking this is just mere state militia. Again, the guy's an early called utterly inefficient. Keith doesn't know that term, but I'm sure he knows by now the state militia is not that good. So that directly influences him on July 1st. And I think the, the line from the movie, the boys got the dander up, right? He's got their dander yeah. up. <laughs> but, or the real line from actual reality, right. tainted old militia. It's them black-hatted fellas as they recognize the Iron Brigade's arrival. Right, right, right. Well, this has been fantastic, but I know that people, after they listen to this, they're just going to go on and buy the book. So how can people learn more about you and purchase the book, of course? Sure. Again, the book is called Flames Beyond Gettysburg, the Confederate Expedition to the Susquehanna River, June 1863. Published by Savas Beatty, LLC. So folks can go on Savas Beatty's website and can order the book from there. It's obviously available at walmart.com, target.com, amazon.com. Most major national and international retailers uh, sell the book, Barnes & Noble, uh, BAM, etc. And you also certainly can buy it at, at bookstores. You can order it from Civil War and more in the Canicsburg. They always have a stock of my books in, in, in there. You can find them on the internet or you can get it directly from me uh, as well. Uh, so there's plenty of places you can find it. I mean, the book's been out a few years. It's still very popular. I think it's in its fifth print run now. We just reprinted it last spring. So it's still out there. So it's, it remains out of the 26 books I've written, the one I'm most known for and the one that probably I've sold by far the most of. Fantastic. And of course, I'm going to talk about, uh, right just because it's right next to me and I'm reading it now, is uh, Gettysburg in Miniature as well, uh, which yeah. I definitely recommend. So I will definitely put links in the show notes so people can uh, click on the link and get your book. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, Paul, I really I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Yeah, and, you know, thank Thank Drew the next time you talk to him for making the introduction. Absolutely. I was I was just about to say that I want to thank Drew uh, Gruber for putting us together because this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to that episode while you drove to work, ran the treadmill, hunting for Mosby, or stealing a rebel locomotive. And just to keep you on tabs with everything, March is going to be a big month for the podcast because I am finally hitting the road. I'm going to Virginia to check out the Civil War Faces show hosted by our sponsor, Military Images Magazine. To learn more about them and how they use portrait photography to help interpret the Civil War, check out their link in the show notes. On this trip, I'll also be hiking some Civil War trails and hopefully fighting a Civil War battle using miniatures. Don't miss out on the live updates on Facebook and Instagram in regards. And subscribe to the YouTube channel as there will be a ton of really cool video content coming out of this. If you wish to assist in this endeavor, go to our website and use the links below to either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon supporter and help out with a monthly donation. Anything and everything helps. Bye for now, and I hope to see some of you in Virginia.